0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Warawan Manalak. I am a PhD candidate at University of Potsdam, Germany and an alumni of the NIA Supra Virtual Research Residency Program. Today, I am here with Dr. Heidi Wang Kading. She is a lecturer in international relations at Keele University, UK. Dr. Wang Kading's research focuses on global environmental governance. Her recent research sheds light on how the rise of China is reshaping regional power dynamics in East Asia, and how China's emergence as a superpower creates normative effects on multilateral governance. Dr. Heidi is also a co-founder of the Hong Kong Studies Association based in the UK. Heidi, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Warawan, for inviting me to the Nordic Asia podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. It is a pleasure today that we have a chance to discuss your new book titled China's Environmental Foreign Relations, published earlier this year by Routledge. Could you please tell us what your book is about and how did you become interested in the topic of China's environmental foreign relations?
1: This book is based on my PhD research. As I was a doctoral student, I have read a lot about environmental governance in China and I realized the existing literature has offered a very rich analysis on how the international factor shapes China's domestic environmental governance. And the key debate has always been between international and local forces. A neglected perspective is how the local forces respond to the international negotiation and also try to respond to a foreign concept of environmental protection, as well as some institutional setup. So the assumption is that the local forces would not passively receiving what the international factors introduced. And I want to understand how the domestic players interact with the international players in the shaping of environmental foreign relations.
0: Could you explain a little bit about the development of China's environmental foreign relations in terms
1: of how the international shapes the agenda in China? Of course. So a key moment which pushes China's environmental governance is the 1972 Stockholm Conference that has really introduced the foreign concept of environmental protection, as well as the urgency of establishing environmental institutions in China to address industrial pollution. As China is integrated into the global environmental regime, we have also identified the trend of China, a Chinese government of sharing their experiences with neighboring countries, and also committing the Chinese regime to a diversity of international environmental treaties. And recently we also see the ambition of the Chinese government to offer alternative norms in terms of environmental governance on the global stage, so that's how I structure my book to map out the trend of the development of China's environmental foreign relations. In summary, uh, we're witnessing China as a student or a follower and evolving into a leader on the regional and also international arena. Wow, that's
0: very interesting indeed. And as you say, there's also domestic actors that has been influencing or shaping the environmental foreign relations in China. Could you describe who are they and why is it important to understand their role in shaping China's environmental foreign relations?
1: Of course, when I started my PhD journey, my focus was on the non-governmental organizations or social organizations, as they are called in China. I have been really inspired by how much work environmental NGOs have contributed to the domestic governance. And also some ambition of uh, environmental NGOs from China to share China's experience and also to be more active in the multilateral environmental governance. So as part of my research strategy, I have a pilot fieldwork research back in 2013 to test the feasibility of my idea, whether it's possible to purely focus on civil society actors. During my fieldwork, I interviewed both civil society organizations as well as interviewees with official affiliations. And I find it very interesting that an overarching keyword in all my interviewees are interest groups. And they mentioned that almost like sharing a secret with me, saying, you know, interest groups are so crucial in the shaping of environmental domestic governance as well as foreign relations. For instance, social organizations leaders tell me that interest groups could be a major obstacle in terms of pushing through environmental regulations and complying with environmental regulations. And interestingly, when I interview... My respondents with official affiliations, they also use interest groups, but to describe NGOs, because NGOs back then still received funding from overseas, from foreign governments or international organizations. So officials would treat NGOs as some interest groups with foreign agenda. So that is fascinating to me. So I went back to the UK and investigated whether interest groups has been used as an analytical lens to study domestic and also foreign environmental governance. And I realized there was not much work focusing on the interest group, but my pilot study also informed me that interest groups is an overarching conceptual framework for various actors in China to refer to each other, to frame each other's activities. So it cannot be ignored. So that's why I've decided to use interest groups as a way to look at various domestic players and also to look at how they interact with each other, how they interpret each other's interests and how they respond to those interests pursued. So that's why I've chosen interest groups as my main analytical lens. That's interesting. So in the Chinese context, how do you define interest groups in your study? That's a great question. I started with the definition of interest. So the very idea of interest in the Chinese context is slightly different from what we are familiar with in the Western context when interest groups have been studied extensively in, for instance, the United States and United Kingdom. Interest in the definition of Chinese political and cultural context entail both a normative aspect as well as a relational aspect. So you can capitalize your or interpersonal network to pursue your So that is what is, is fascinating about the very definition of interest in the Chinese context. In terms of typology of interest groups, I referred very much and also got inspired by uh, Chen shui work on the different types of interest groups in China. So we're talking about enterprise, association, institutional and public interest groups. And they all represent a very different set and combination of interest and how they pursue their interest in the institutional channel. Do you also
0: observe the emergence of new interest groups in the context of China's
1: environmental governance? Yeah, I think the typology of interest group gives us the framework to categorize various actors. And of course, with new leadership We also see the changing power dynamics within the existing interest groups. So for instance, in my book, I have also talked about how Chinese traditional medicine sector as an association interest group influenced the implementation of the Convention on Biodiversity International Environmental Treaty. So what remains the same is that interest groups will mobilize narratives, concepts, to align their private interests or narrowly defined interests with the national interest. And they pretty much refer on their interpretation to make sure their interests will be prioritized and also ranked before others' interests. So I think that is still continuing, regardless of new actors entering the game. Wow, that's fascinating
0: to hear. You discuss about ecological civilization in your book. In your argument, the concept of ecological civilization is a composite ideology of the Chinese
1: environmentalism. Could you please elaborate a little more on this? Absolutely. Happily to do so. Ecological civilization came to my attention also during my pilot study. So it's important to have a pilot study for your doctoral studies in general. And I was intrigued by the ambition behind ecological civilization or eco-civilization because eco-civilization has evolved from an academic concept that back in 1980s to a political agenda or political project, And it has been included in the party constitution, which suggests its political gravity of this concept. And the eco-civilization has the ambition to cover so many aspects, socialism, Chinese philosophy and tradition, economic development, and also the ambition to preserve nature. So it's a lot in this concept. And that reminds me of the idea of composite ideology as a way to conceptualize what eco-civilization is. Uh, Let me just repeat the definition of composite ideology so our audience have an understanding of this concept. Composite ideology refers to a set of ideas employed to facilitate the accomplishment of political action and justify particular social orders. And this will be achieved by associating such actions and orders with the notion of the general good. And this is exactly what eco-civilization tries to achieve. It tries to reconcile the incompatibles, such as economic development and environmental protection. And also it reconciles the ideational incompatibilities, such as socialism and traditional Chinese philosophy and culture. And so, composite ideology helps us to uncover that eco civilization has this political compromise and also at the same time, ambition to deliver a general good. And you can also see how the national leaders use eco civilization to promote both domestic projects as well as international foreign policy ambition. There's one episode on the Nordic Asia podcast by Matthew Hansen on eco civilization, which is a very good podcast, and it highlights the importance of domestic audience and a domestic project. And I build upon that literature and argue further that it is also a foreign policy project. It is a way to demonstrate China is offering an alternative norm to the multilateral governance eco civilization would be the alternative norm, alternative to liberal environmentalism. And also, if we look at how domestic interest groups help shape the understanding and interpretations of eco civilization, we can also see the synergy between domestic players and foreign audience. So basically, domestic players use the attention of foreign audience as a political capital in their domestic bargain of power and resources. So one example would be the then Ministry of Environmental Protection. You may be aware that eco-civilization as a notion has been incorporated in a United Nations resolution. And that has been pushed by the Ministry of Environmental Protection in the domestic bargaining process of fighting for ministerial leadership. So that's one example of how this Interpretation of eco-civilization could also help domestic interest groups to gain their power, gain their resources in a domestic domain. So eco-civilization as a composite ideology is also a way to demonstrate China's discourse power to showcase if China wants to establish its leadership, it also has its own concept and its own interpretation of how environmental governance should be conducted on the global stage. That is fascinating.
0: And I also came across that this concept of eco-civilization has also been promoting under the Belt and Road Initiative. So would that also be an approach that the Chinese government is trying to do and communicate to the international audience? Or how do you see it?
1: Yeah, I would be in line with your interpretation overseas projects would not create the same level of impact as other industrialized countries have done. So eco-civilization comes up as a very convenient way for the Chinese government to build such a green image. So that's one aspect of looking at how eco-civilization is influencing Belt and Road Initiative. But we need to look at the roadmap and concrete actions because different from sustainable development and other concepts, we do not see a very clear set of goals to be achieved or policy mechanism, economic instruments involved. So it's still very much a broad and political concept to be promoted on the global stage to reassure the international community. So we need to follow up observing whether ecological civilization also means green financing, for instance, the, ministry, the then Ministry of Environmental Protection has introduced this term to the United Nations, and their highlight is state capacity. We need a strong state capacity to address ecological prices. and that, of course, is undermining the importance of public participation which is a key element in the liberal environmentalism, the appreciation of social movements, of various activism in the development of collective solution. And the other important aspect of eco-civilization is the emphasis on technology, on technological fix. And that has also been an overarching theme, particularly in the development of eco-civilization, to look at how We can rely on technology to address the environmental crisis. So in terms of technology, we're talking about clean technology, renewable energy development, things like that, to make sure that technology could be in our favor. But as I said earlier, eco-civilization is relatively vague and still a project in the making. So that's why it is also different from liberal environmentalism. It is not a prescription of policies. It is more like a compromise of the Chinese government with domestic interest groups as well as an increasing and emerging ambition in a normative aspect of global environmental governance.
0: Is this also a Chinese way of proposing the ideological concept when they try to embed it as a political agenda or political discourse, that this concept usually being left vague and open for so many interpretations, like the Belt and Road Initiative, for example?
1: Yeah, that's the strategic ambiguity that we're talking about, right? So, to, to policy roadmap domestically, but that policy roadmap is absent on the global stage due to the nature of anarchy in the international governance and also due to the vagueness of eco civilization as an alternative norm. So, the very value of this alternative is to show other players, other states that you can rely on actors other than the US, Europe, or other conventional leaders when there is no hope or there is pure despair. So that's the purpose of this existence of alternative. It's not about what it concretely suggests or promises, it's about having it. It's it's very existence is the purpose of its being. That is fascinating. And let me
0: curious about how the international audiences take these messages. For example, when people from other countries Like in Thailand, hear about ecological civilization, and then they will have no clue what it is about. So, yeah, do you observe any feedback from international audiences, whether they positively receive it or
1: whether they are more not sure what it is about? I'm not surprised that the public in Thailand finds eco-civilization quite confusing because that's also the reaction in the UN when... Chinese officials try to promote and sell this concept in multilateral location. And the confusing part is the word civilization, right? So there is also a long translation process of thinking about how to make this concept politically ambitious and at the same time not too intimidating. Dr.
0: Heidi Wang Keding, thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations again on the publication of your book, China's Environmental Foreign Relations, published in March this year. This book really provides valuable contribution to recent studies on China's role in global environmental governance. We also would like to thank our listener for joining us today. My name is Walawan Wanala. Thank you for listening to the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Hayden. Thank you so much for having me today.
0: You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.